and I hope you do, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and we will pray that I preach better than I sing. Amen? Hey, for the first time you guys didn't say amen, and I'm glad you didn't. <laughs> Good deal. I was looking for unanimous uh, support there. Um, if, if you don't know, if, uh, if maybe you're new and you've trickled in, uh, the fourth Sunday or the last Sunday, I could be corrected, is our men's choir. So uh, if any of you men uh, are anxious to, to do something out of your comfort zone, which I am completely in the men's choir, uh, we'd love to have you. It's not about how good you can sing. It's about making a joyful news, right? That's why they let me in. So let's, uh, let's turn to Ephesians 2, and uh, I'll open us in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the health that you've given us to be here today. God, I pray that as we break open your word and we, we feast on your words, Lord, I pray that uh, it would bring nourishment to our soul. God, I pray that you would uh, use me in a mighty way to feed your people. And God, I pray that we would leave here uh, more like you than when we came. So God, I pray that you would do something uh, amazing and incredible among us. And God, I pray that uh, you would start with me. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, you remember we started in Ephesians chapter 1. I told you that the book of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul. He writes it from prison, and he writes uh, uh, the earliest copies of the, the book of Ephesians that we have don't have the words to Ephesus on them. And so we're not sure if this, le- if this letter was to go specifically to the church of Ephesus or if it was to be written somewhat like a chain letter. Now, when you think chain letter, don't think all of those crazy emails that you get that say, send this to 10 people or your dog's going to die. Don't think that sort of thing. Thank, uh, thank Paul is in prison. They don't have Twitter. They don't have Facebook. They don't have Foursquare. They don't have email. And the mail that they have is when you give it to someone and you put him on a horse and you send him riding along. And so that's what they had. They didn't have any sort of mass communication. So Paul writes this letter uh, that we call Ephesians. And it's possible that this letter was meant to go to a church. And then that church was to send it around to all the other brother and sister churches. So in the book of Romans, Paul takes a long time uh, to to explain to us what we have in salvation. In the book of Romans, Paul talks about things like justification and sanctification and propitiation and all of these big words. And if you're reading through Romans and you... Have any of you guys ever been reading through a book and you start to daydream and then you've gone a half a page, a whole page, three pages, and you think, dog, I forgot everything I was reading. If you do that in the book of Romans, you're lost. And so maybe Paul had that in mind when he writes Ephesians. He writes more of a pamphlet for us that aren't as, uh, as quick as he'd like for us to be. And so he writes this short, brief letter to the church. And he starts out at the beginning of Ephesians. He gives you a lot of theology. He gives you a lot about God. And he gives you a lot about who you are And then in the second part of Ephesians, he says, because you are all of these things in Christ, and because Christ did all of these things for you, then you should behave this way. And so we're going to have a really good time when it comes to application in the second part of Ephesians. But for these first few weeks, we're going to be talking a lot about who Christ is, what Christ did, who you were before Christ, and who you are now as a result of what Christ has done. So that's where we find ourselves today, Ephesians chapter 2. Now, if you want to understand the first part of Ephesians chapter 2, it's helpful to drop back into chapter 1. 
So if you'll go to chapter 1, verse 18. Chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 18 says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now he's going to talk about the power. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, verse 20, which he exerted when Christ, when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And so here in the end of verse 1, or the end of chapter 1, you have Christ, the Son of God, has died, he's been buried, and he's been resurrected. And when he was resurrected, when he broke out of the grave, God didn't just raise him from the dead, but he physically rose Christ from the dead, and he seated him at the right hand of God the Father. And so Jesus Christ isn't just a guy who died on the cross for your sins. He is a risen Savior who is not just... (laughs) To say he's not just risen from the dead sounds funny because I don't know anybody else risen from the dead. But he's not just risen from the dead, but he's risen from the dead and he has a seat of authority in heaven. Now we jump into Ephesians chapter 2. So Christ was physically dead, and he was physically risen, and he was physically seated at the right hand of the Father. Then Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, As for you, you also, or you, were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, in the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. And so I told you guys last week that when I give my testimony, I always go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that you, brother and sister, the same way that Christ was physically dead, you were spiritually dead. You, before you found Christ... And if you are here now and you don't know Christ, you are presently dead, spiritually speaking, in your transgressions and sins. The Bible says that all of us were dead in our transgressions and sins, but it says that we were dead when we lived following the ways of this world in the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Then he says that we lived, in verse 3, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And so I would go places and I would see things. I would go to a a men's ministry event and and a man's man would stand up there, a guy who was a Hell's Angels biker. And he used to sell... all sorts of drugs. He used to do all sorts of drugs. And I would sit in my pew and I would think, man, my testimony stinks. I never did crack. I never, I never, I never did all those things. I'm, man, God didn't do as much for me. Isn't it amazing that that, that guy is, has been changed so much that he used to be one, one way. He used to be a, a lying, cheating, stealing murderer. And he used to do all these bad things, and now he's this way. What an amazing testimony for God. And I would sit there, and I would just kind of slouch, and I would think, man, I don't have a testimony like that. But when you read God's word, what you find is that all of you 
who were lost were dead. That same person who did all of those sorts of bad things that we call bad, that we consider bad. You know, we as humans, we, we have a scale of sin. If you, if you lust, that's not near as bad as the guy who actually stole something. That's the way we tend to justify things. But the reality is, is that if you, before you knew Christ, you were dead. That, that Hell's Angels biker who did all of those things, he was just as dead as I was dead. I grew up in church. I grew up around the church. Even though I grew up in the church and around the church, I didn't love the church, nor had I committed my life to Christ. And spiritually speaking, I was just as dead as that biker was spiritually dead. Now, had we done different things? Yes. Were the consequences for the things that he had done greater than mine? Yes, they definitely were. But the reality is, is that spiritually speaking, lost people, every single lost person that you know is spiritually dead. Now, this comes to play in the way that we as a church pray for lost people. This is something where if you're interested in praying for lost people, we're going to talk more about it on Wednesday nights. When we pray for lost people, what do we pray sometimes? And now don't take this. If you've ever said these things, this is not meant to be offensive in any way, shape, or form. Sometimes what we pray is, God, I pray that you would help them to know you. I pray that you would help them to be better. I pray that you would help them do some of these things. Listen, when we pray for lost people, it's like there's a great chasm. And you have lost people on one side and you have saved people on another. And when I pray for a lost person, I don't just want them to know something small about Christ. I don't just want God them to know God a little bit. Boy, when I pray for lost people, I want them to be radically transformed. I want this person who's dead to become alive. I have lost family members that are absolutely spiritually dead. And I don't pray for them to change a little bit. I pray for them to go from this camp of lost, dead people to this camp of alive people in Christ who are spiritually reborn. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you have to be born again. See, everyone is born physically, but you are born in a sense, unto Satan. Someone who is born that doesn't know Christ ever is a slave to sin and in turn a slave to Satan. And so even if you are in this camp, if your family members or even you may be in this camp, you are a slave to sin and it says that you live in the world for one person and that is you. You see, when I was lost, even though I was in church, even though I wasn't a hell's angel's Hell, Hell's Angels biker, I was an idolater and my idol was me. I did things that made Bobby happy. We live in a culture that says do whatever it takes to make number one happy. If you need an iPhone, buy an iPhone. If you need an iPad, buy an iPad. If you need a new car, we'll finance it for you dirt cheap. You'll ruin your kids' lives, but you'll be okay. We'll give it to you cheap. Anything that you want, we will make it so that you can get it. The bank will loan you more money than you ever need to spend on a house so that you can be what you think is happy. And we live in a world of people who are spiritually dead and they live to gratify themselves. And listen, Paul says this. He doesn't just say, you, you, you are bad. He says, all of us lived that way. 
Every single one of us, before we met Christ, did what was best for us. Now, sometimes we do things that are good for other people, and they make us feel good about ourselves, but on a regular basis, it's me that we're worried about. That's why our culture is so far downhill, it is on a spiraling um, is on a downhill spiral, and it's not going to get better. That's why we live in such a sex-crazed culture. The culture says, do whatever is best for you, and we will tolerate it. And if someone doesn't tolerate it, the tolerant people can't tolerate them because they're intolerant. That's the world we live in. So if you do what's best for you, you will fit in perfectly in this culture. My prayer is that one day, if you do what's best for you, you won't fit in in the church. Because the church isn't full of people who do what's best for them. The church is full of people who do what's best for him. And we give of ourselves because of that. So, the text says that all of us, all of us, and Paul puts himself in the same category. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. You normally see dead people at funerals. Do you ever go to a funeral and expect the dead person to get up? No. You never, you never drive from the church to the graveside and expect for the person to be alive when you get there. You don't expect for the preacher to do any sort of miracle to raise that person from the dead. They're dead. The interesting fact about, and I'm not trying to be morbid, but an interesting fact about dead people is that they stay dead. They don't get up. They don't come back to life until Jesus brings them back to life. Here it says that you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Verse 4 says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. And so the idea is that you, as an unbeliever, were here and you were happy here gratifying yourself. But Christ, being rich in mercy, with the great love he has for us, he reached down and he grabbed you and he made you alive in Christ. If someone dies, now I said that dead people don't come back to life, but medically speaking, you know, every once in a while someone can be, can be technically dead and then the doctors shock them or they do CPR and they bring them back to life. But the dead person doesn't come back to life by themselves. They have to be made, brought back to life. And so if you have salvation, if you are spiritually alive in Christ, you are alive in Christ because God reached down and he woke you up and he brought you alive in Christ. When you came to a point where you realized that you were a sinner and that you needed someone to save you from your sins, you didn't realize that because you are great. Sorry if that's new to you. You realize that because God, through his Holy Spirit, convicted you and he was actively making you alive while you were dead. And all this is going to make sense in a minute. Then it says that in verse 6, that God raised us up with Christ. This is spiritually speaking. Remember how Christ was physically dead and then he was raised up and seated beside the Father? Verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ spiritually and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this, not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So, God raised you up spiritually. He took you. This is what it looked like when you were saved, or when you got saved, if you are. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and for the most part, you were content. You didn't have a care in the world about God. But then God, because he was rich in mercy, he started to act in your life, and he made you alive in Christ. And then is when you repented and you got on that right track, spiritually speaking, so to speak. And when you got saved, he didn't just bring you alive in Christ. He took you and he seated you in the heavenly places with Christ. So you're not just saved. You are saved and then you are seated in an incredibly great spot, spiritually speaking. If you were to go to a, one time I went to a pastor's lunch and the, the big wig pastor, uh, his name was Clayton King. He's a really neat guy. Well, at the pastor's lunch, it just so happened that I sat beside him. I didn't know him before I went to the lunch, but I got to sit beside him and I got to know him. And I thought it was really neat that I got to sit beside this guy. That's probably like the most popular guy I've ever sat beside. Sorry. So I sit beside him and it's neat, but you didn't just get saved. God didn't just let you into the party. He let you into the party and he gave you a seat of honor because he raised you from the dead spiritually and then seated him, seated you spiritually next to him. Then it says this. He did this. This is verse seven. So that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You see, there's two words that are going to be used here. One word is grace and one word is mercy. Grace is when you're freely given something that you don't deserve. So if you've ever been given something that you don't deserve, you got grace. Mercy is the other word. Mercy is when you don't get something that you do deserve. So you come home from school. Maybe you come home on your 16th birthday and dad gives you a new car. That's grace. You were given something that you didn't deserve. Uh, just, just for the record, it's impossible for anyone to deserve a new car. It just really is. You don't know what none of you, if you've ever got a new car, deserved it. I got a, uh, a really old car, and I didn't even deserve it. Mercy is when you come home from school, and you know at the bus stop you threw a rock at the window and broke it, and you get home from school, and you don't get the whipping you deserve. That's mercy. Okay? When you don't get something you do deserve... Grace is when you get something you don't deserve. Following me? So God wants to show the world how much grace he has towards it. And so he takes us and he seats us next to Christ so that in the coming ages, he can show the world how much grace he's bestowed on it in Jesus. All these people say, oh, God's mean. God does all these bad things. Why does, why does God do all bad things to good people? And people just put God out there like they're accusing him of things. One day... The world is going to look at all of the great things that God did through Christ Jesus and the grace he bestowed on the world. And you are supposed to be living proof of the grace God bestowed on the world because you, spiritually speaking, are seated with Christ. So when somebody says, what has God done good in the world lately? You should be able to say, me, I'm something good he's done. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. Now I'm alive in Christ. That should be what we're able to do.
So then he says, verse 8, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. So if you got saved, if you've been saved, you didn't work to get saved. You didn't do anything. God took you when you were dead and he made you alive. If, if one of you, God forbid, had a heart attack now and, and you died and we did CPR, you wouldn't pop back up and be like, look what I did. I'm back. We would say, no, brother, um, we, <laughs> we did that. Um, it was Jonathan who gave you mouth to mouth that brought you back to life. And we'd point to him. But it was, nobody would give credit for the guy who, who woke up from the dead. It would be the person who brought him back to life. So if you are saved, you didn't work for it. Therefore, it was a free gift of God. It was grace. So you don't get to be stingy with it. That's why stingy Christians and, you know, we're honest here. That's why when Christians act stuck up about their salvation, it doesn't make any sense because it was a free gift. When people drive to the grocery store and cars that other people gave them and you know that they can't buy, they don't deserve, and they can't afford, you don't think great things of them. It was a gift. And so you should be excited for them about the gift they have. But if they're arrogant about it, it doesn't make any sense. It's the same way with your salvation. It was something you were freely given, and it's something that you should be willing, freely giving away to other people. It's a gift. You didn't earn it. Nor most, of, nor do we deserve it, but it's a gift of God. For we, verse 10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so we didn't work for it so that no one can boast, but you are God's workmanship. When we don't use the word workmanship very much, but we are the product that Christ has created that he can be proud of. I was driving to Greenville earlier this week, and there was this farmer plowing this field. And I don't know whether you farmers know this or not, but one of the things about you that always impresses me, I'd love to, amongst other things, is the fact that you can drive a tractor for a mile straight, dead straight. I'm amazed at that, that you look at those, those, you look at those fields and all of those crops are in one straight line. It amazes me. Absolutely amazes me. Don't know how you do it. Don't tell me because I want to be impressed. If it's an easy way to do it, don't tell me because you're, you're up here. Don't say anything to, to make it sound easy. But when I drove back from Greenville, the farmer was done plowing the field, and I looked over there as he was finishing up the last row, and I thought, wow, if I would have plowed that field, I would be really proud of it at this point. I would be proud of the final product. You are intended to be God's workmanship. And he is actively molding us, making us what he wants us to be. And you should be something that he can be proud of. And when you are something that he can be proud of, you shouldn't be prideful in yourself because he made you that way. It's not because you did it. It's because he did it. So if you are convicted of sin, it's not just because of you. It's not because you're more righteous than your neighbor. It's because God is the one convicting you. So you are created to be God's workmanship, which God created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So we've talked about this before. You were created to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance. Now, verse 11. 
This gets a little bit wordy, but let us get through chapter 12 or through verse 12 and it'll make more sense. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. So, he says that, remember you, Paul is a Jew, and he's writing this book to the Ephesians who are Gentiles. If you remember, during the time of Christ, there was a great divide between Jews and Gentiles. Jews are the group of people who who live in Israel and they have the law. Gentiles are everyone else. You are a Gentile. You, you eat barbecue. You like buns barbecue, and you're allowed to eat it, and you are a pig-eating Gentile, and you're glad to be one, right? If you were, if you were a Jew, that's not an insult, we all are. Um, if you were a Jew, you would have to drive by buns on the opposite side of the road, because you, you don't get to partake in those things. So there's this great divide between Jews and Gentiles. And remember, he says, that you Gentiles were excluded from the Jews, you weren't allowed to have the same privileges that the Jews had. Now, at first, we're going to chase a small rabbit. At first, the Jews were meant to draw the world to Christ. That was God's plan for the Jewish nation. But over time, the Jews forgot. They got prideful in their workmanship. And instead of branching out to everyone, they focused on themselves. If you read back to the prayers of Solomon and the prayers of David and the prayers of Moses, the nation of Israel was meant to draw all of the other nations to God. But the farther they get along, the more entrenched they get in sin, the more hatred they get for outsiders, and the more love they get for themselves. They get very self-righteous, and they stay inward-focused. Now, that's a whole other sermon. But here we go. So he says, remember that you were excluded from the promises of God and you were separated from God. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. And so this is still good news for you. You Gentiles, me Gentile, we were far off from the promises. We were far off from everything. But Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus brings those who were far off near If you were a Gentile 3,000 years ago, you were hopeless for the most part. You didn't have a hope. But Christ has come into the world, and he's brought those, us, who were far, near. You see, we live in America, and we think that we've done all of these great things, and we, we have the American dream. If you want it, you go get it, right? If you lived in America 4,000 years ago, during the time of the Old Covenant, they didn't even know about America. And so if you were happy here in America with the American dream, you were hopeless. And you were far away from the promises. The only reason that you have what you have in Christ is because of the hardworking missionaries and Christians who went before you who brought the gospel here. Because it hasn't always been here. So, 
Christ takes those who are far away. He brings them near. He breaks down the dividing wall, which is the law of hostility, abolishing in his flesh with his commandments, with its commandments and regulations. So Christ comes to earth. He lives a perfect life. He, he abides by the law. And then he dies on the cross for your sins. And the reason that his sin is effective, or excuse me, the reason I was a heretic then, the reason his death is effective for you is because he fulfilled the law. Every letter of the law he fulfilled and then he died making him an acceptable sacrifice for you. And when he does that, the veil of the temple tears in two and he abolishes the law. And now we as, as followers of Christ, there's no longer Jew and Gentile. He died to make the two one and we now have access to the Father. I've jumped a little bit ahead. Let me read and catch up. It says his purpose, this is the middle of verse 15. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. So he's going to make peace between Jew and Gentile. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So there, there used to be a group of people, Gentiles, who were far away from God. And Christ came on the scene to bring those who were far near. But there was hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so Christ, in his body, one man, fulfills the law and brings the Gentiles close. So Christ doesn't make something new. He takes the Jews and he takes the Gentiles and he, in one man, makes peace through the cross. Make sense? You'll have to stew on that for a little while, but it's going to make sense ultimately. And so why do we have Jews today? And why do we have Gentiles today? Well, the reality is that the, the, the two, to put it simply, should have merged and become one. But not everybody, some people missed the boat. They, uh, they didn't get on board. So, Christ came, preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. That's what I told you before about when Christ died, the veil on the temple tore. And now both Jew and Gentile have access to the Father. And we're going we're gonna to flesh this out a little bit in a minute once we get to the end. So, it says in verse 19, Consequently... You are no longer foreigners and aliens. You Gentiles are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. So if you are here and you have been saved, remember in verse, in chapter one, we used the illustration of adoption, that you were adopted into God's family. If you have been saved, you are no longer a foreigner and an alien, but you're a citizen and a member of God's house. And think about the benefits that anyone that you brought into your house would receive with just you being an earthly father. If you were to be adopted into my house, that would mean that I then provide for you. Anybody who lives in my house, and I'm just a regular earthly father, you're going to get food, you're going to get water, you're going to get clothes, and you're going to get shelter. Those are the pretty pretty basic things that you're going to get. Those are benefits that you get as being a member in my household. You also, as much as I can do, you get safety. So that means when you put your head on the pillow at night, that means that anyone who comes into the house to do anything wrong gets the, the, the business end of Dad's 45. 
And that's part of the benefits that you get being in my family, whether you know it or not. You, as a child of God, get the benefits of being in God's family. Remember all the spiritual blessings he talked about in chapter 1? If you've been saved, you get all of those. You get the redemption. You get the forgiveness of sins and all of the other ones he listed. And so there is a huge benefit to you being a member of God's family. Now he's telling you all of this encouraging things because in about two or three weeks, he's going to say, now act like it. That's why he's telling you all of these great things that you get in Christ. Then he says, so that you're, you're members of God's household. And he says, in this house is not a house of cards. It's not like a bum walked into the orphanage and said, okay, I'll take that one. And then you went to some bum's house and you lived the rest of your life as an adopted child. It says, no, it says that God's house is built. This is verse 20. God's household is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And so you, when you're adopted into God's family, you're not just a Gentile who gets brought into a mediocre family. When you're brought into God's family, you get most of the promises that have been promised beforehand. You get a lot of the things that have been promised to God's family. And so you are then what we call a child of Abraham. And so everything that's going to Abraham, for the, for the most part, is coming to you too. Now, it's a much deeper question to figure out how much, and we'll disagree there, but it doesn't matter, right? Not for the sake of this conversation. That's one we'll have later. But you, you have, you have a family history. I told some of you guys, if I had a family reunion, it would be, I would have the biggest part of the family reunion because I don't know past dad or grandpa. But now I'm a member of God's family and my heritage is deep. Because this is now my heritage also, because I'm a member of God's family, as are you. This now is my identity. The, the house that I now live in has Christ as the cornerstone, and it's built on him. And that is good news for anybody. So then, he says this, in him, that's Christ, the whole building is joined together. That's verse 21. In him, the whole building is joined together, the whole house, and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And so the house that you're a member of is joined together through Christ and is being raised up to be a temple to the Lord. And this is in verse 22. This is where we'll finish. And in him, in Christ, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And so now you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And God being rich in mercy grabs you and he makes you alive in Christ. And he seats you spiritually speaking in the heavenly places with Christ. And he brings you into his family which has a deep heritage of which Christ is the cornerstone. And so you get all the law, you get all the prophets and all those guys. That's your heritage now. And then he says that that house is being built up to a big temple. And he says, and you are being made into a place where God can dwell. Now, I'm going to critique a little bit of the way that we pray. The church prays sometimes in a, in a way that is is very, very, very well-meaning, but it stunts the reality. 
it, it keeps us from moving forward. Sometimes when we pray as a church, and the church in America does this, churches across America get together in church buildings, and they say, God, thank you for allowing us to come into your house today to worship you. The reality is, is that this church building doesn't house God during the week. You do. You are the house of God. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives inside of you. Our strategy isn't to bring people here to meet God. Our strategy is that God lives inside of you. You're being built into a temple of the Holy Spirit. And when you go from place to place, you take God with you. You don't invite them somewhere to meet God. You take God to the people. That's the strength in the Great Commission. Now I'm going to stop. I want to keep going. I want to, I want to burn up your lunch hour talking about the implications of the Holy Spirit being in you as opposed to being in a building. It's fabulous. But... As we come to our time of invitation, some of you may be here, and you may be very, very well-meaning. You may have the best of intentions for all those around you. But if you have never met our Savior, and you've never put your faith in his death, burial, and resurrection, then you are dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy with the love he has for you, he wants today to wake you up, and he wants to raise you spiritually and put you in the heavenly places with him. That's what he wants to do for you. So if you don't know Christ, he wants to save you. If you do know Christ, then you have all of those things that we just talked about. You have all of those blessings. Now, I won't won't be too hard on you because I'm going to get you in about three weeks. Trust me. Me and the Holy Spirit have been talking. And so if, if, you, if you haven't been, excuse me, if you are already saved and you're a child of God during this invitation, it should be incredibly worship, worshipful for you because of all the great things that he's given you. You know, sometimes it's good for us as Americans to take a step back and just to be thankful for the things that we have that we take for granted. And so during our song of invitation, we'll sing, we'll sing both verses. You be thankful, and if you don't know Christ... Today's the day for you to meet him. So if you stand with us while we sing, Jonathan will lead us. Thank you guys for coming. Two two announcements I forgot. Number one, read the bulletin about the smoke detector training. And if you weren't at the men's, uh, at the Brotherhood breakfast this morning and you want to come, uh, let me know. Call me, email me, get in touch with me somehow so I can reserve you a spot. Also, tonight, the children are meeting uh, at 5 o'clock. Instead of meeting here for Team Kid, we're kicking everything off for our children's ministry at the Country Club. And so be there at 5 o'clock and bring your kids' bathing suits and everything else. Anything else to add? That's, that's good. Uh, I had forgot to mention that, though. Make sure that uh, any child that you're interested in entering into our children's ministry, uh, you may have friends, neighbors, relatives that you want to get plugged in. Uh, no better time than a pool party to get plugged into the children's ministry. Right. So also the smoke detector uh, announcement uh, that's going to be big for our church. Glad you came. It was a pleasure to see you guys. Let me close this in prayer. Father God, thank you for your blessings. Thank you for all of the marvelous things that we have in Christ. God, I pray that everyone here would never grow tired of hearing your word preached. I pray that they would never grow tired of hearing of the great marvelous and fabulous things that we have in you. 
God, I pray that we as a church body would always view you as our treasure and never earthly things. And God, I pray that we would, uh, as a body, uh, on a daily basis, grow closer to you. So God, go with us this week as we serve you and help us to be worthy as temples of your Holy Spirit. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.